Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, home of the world's greatest artist, TLC, Gladys Knight, India Ari, Indigo Girls, and Hartsfield Atlanta Jackson Airport, the Falcons, and Clark Atlanta University. This is The Bright Side with Technicia, a daily show with real people with real experiences. And now, here's your host, Technicia. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of The Bright Side with Technicia, and I'm glad to have you here from the comfort of my home in Atlanta, Georgia, where the weather is kind of tricky, pollen is out, we don't know which way to swing it because we're getting weather from the north. And happy National Puppy Day to everyone. Sorry for the milk mustache if everybody sees it. I have been drinking my Herbalife shake and I got a mustache. So I am here live with you on Blog Talk Radio and live on Live Me. I use all different types of outlets to spread the word. I want everybody to see what I, it is that I do. Appreciate the love. So if you're watching the replay, please make sure you share it with your friends. I want to get my show out there and let everyone know about this show. Well, we have real guests on. We have authors, holistic healers, spiritual healers, people who know about the body inside and out, sexual abusers, sex traffickers, you name it, I have them on the show. Anyhow, I am glad to have this person back on. This is a dear friend of mine. And I had her on my show four years ago where we were talking about one of her books. And now we are here talking about one of her newest books. And I'm so excited that she has given me the honor to do so in interviewing her. So I'm very, I'm very grateful, as I said, in every little thing that I do um, because without faith or God, it would not be possible at all. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome my guest, Jay Hensley. But before I do, I want to just let you know, Jay Hensley is the author of six books, including one of her bestseller, 1980s Kid, The Incorrigible Dreamers, and her newest book, The Harvest Christ. She has appeared on so many shows, including mine, all over the United States, and two of her books were featured in the independent film, Death, Suspects, and Murder. She is a graduate of the University of Valley Forge and Lock Haven University and resides in Pennsylvania. Her books are available on Amazon. And to learn more about her and what it is she does, you can visit her website at jhidley.com. That's J-J-A-D-E-H-E-S-L-E-Y.com. She can be found on Facebook at Arthur J. Hidley and on Twitter at J. Hidley. So, now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome my longtime friend, Jay. Jay, thank you so much for being back. Technicia, thank you so much for having me again, and thank you for that wonderful, warm welcome. I love coming on your show. It's one of my favorites. Oh, I'm so glad. You know what I'm glad, too, Jay? I'm glad to have inspired so many people with this show. I have been getting so many compliments by doing this, and I don't even – never received anything because I think through Blog Talk Radio you can get paid, but I don't get paid hardly anything. But I love doing it because of the connection to get people to say they get me and they love hearing me, that's that's paid value enough. You can't get that anywhere else. But anyhow, Jay, 
I'm, I'm glad to have you on. I lost some of your books, and I'm going to have to get them again because I had a house fire three years ago. So oh all I lost every single book that I had on my bookshelf, including yours, and all oh, that devastated me so badly. So I was like, oh, my God, all these books, now I got to go and replace my hey, book cost. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes, but I'm glad to have you, like I said, back on. It's been four years since the last time we talked about the 1980s kid, the encouragement for dreamers. Now we have this Harvest Quiet out. And I was shocked, Jay. I was like, Jay, back in the business. That's what I love because you didn't stop. Um, you didn't stop doing what you love doing the most. So, Jay, what exactly is the Harvest Quiet? What brought you to write this book? Well, uh, the... Uh the book kind of came to me into my head. It, it just kind of a split second thing. It just kind of dropped into my head out of the clear blue sky, which is the strange thing when you write, you know, I think when you kind of get yourself into a creative mindset, which I think um, even if you're creatively inclined, I think it still is a, it's a behavioral practice, really kind of a thing that you just sort of train yourself to think that way. Um, I really do believe that humans are capable of training themselves to think in any way that they choose to, which I think is why that's so vigilant that we need to be aware of what it is we're focusing on. Um, but uh, the the book, the whole concept just kind of came to me out of the clear blue sky. So uh, okay. one day I just kind of had this image in my head of this uh, very sad, depressed, lonely old lady sitting in a wheelchair by herself at a nursing home. And uh, there were some people around on the perimeter but nobody was really talking to her or acknowledging her. And then I saw this man come up to her behind her in white scrubs, and he leaned over the back of her wheelchair, and he leans over to her ear, and he starts whispering all these terribly horrible, insulting things. And she, understands, understandably, became very upset and disturbed. But then she realizes that everything he's saying was things that she had said to her students when uh, she had been a school teacher. So now she has this double horror of everything she had done was now catching up with her, and she was going to be held accountable for it. So I just thought that was such a fascinating concept that uh, I just kept rolling it over in my head for the next couple of weeks um, until the whole concept of the harvest criers came to me. Um, the harvest criers being these uh, supernatural uh, creatures who come to certain humans to uh, kind of bring a reckoning to them. And it can either be positive or it can be negative, but it's up to how this person chose to uh, use their free will over the course of their lives. Okay, so basically, Jay, is a, it sounds like a little bit of reward and revenge, your book. So why do you think the idea of a book center around that appeals to readers? Well, I think the reason is uh, it's kind of a universal idea that right. uh, what you what you do um, in terms of how you choose to uh, act and, and conduct yourself um, will come back around again. Um, you know, whether you're, you're thinking of kind of like these cliches of, you know, what goes around comes around, it, it goes beyond that. I think it's something that's really rooted in our culture, no matter which culture you come from. Um, you know, in uh, the Western Christian idea, you know, of uh, you reap what you sow. Um, in a lot of Eastern traditions, they have the idea of karma, um, you know, and every major world religion, now I'm not saying every religion in the world, but I'm saying every major world religion um, has a belief in common that whatever deity is the center of that religion 
has a code of conduct that people are responsible for keeping. And whether or not they choose to keep it determines their fate in the afterlife. So I think it's almost this universal human idea that you will be paid back for what you do eventually. And I think that's the appeal of the book. Oh, yeah, that is. Because I love even shows like that. It just I think it's just a turn on just that little thick, twisted little plot knowing something that's going to go on and most of this how most people think, hey, you do this for me, you do this to me, I'm going to do this to tick for tech. So I can see that going that way. Yeah, that's a pretty cool idea how you came out with that. Now, there's, there's something in your book that you mentioned. The nursing home is called mm-hmm. the Harvest House, and five residents are tended to by three harvest criers. How long does it take the residents to realize that there is something unusual about their new situation? Well, when they first go in, it's, uh, you know, they're they're thinking they're just in a, you know, regular kind of a nursing home. Um, Harvest House is a little bit unique in the sense that it's a converted Victorian hotel. So it has been pristinely restored to its uh, former grandeur. So the people that are there for reward, they go to this absolutely beautiful uh, section of the building. However, there is another kind of more clinical, modern wing that's built onto the back. Um, And that is where the people who are there for revenge, um, that's where they go. So with the people who are there for reward, it's kind of a mysterious unfolding for them of these things that start to happen almost immediately, these little things, and they're kind of shocked as to why are these good things happening, what's with this place, you know, what's happening to me in a very positive way. So for the people that are there for revenge, it's kind of case by case um, in the individuals, but they usually find out the true magnitude of why they're there a lot quicker. But uh, I think, you know, kind of very somewhat by character, but I think it's a it's just this unfolding, and I think that creates good suspense, and that makes for good fiction. Right, and I love a good fiction. Anything with suspense, I'm down for it. I love to be kind of lost in the moment, and then at the end, find out like, oh, yeah, that's what was really going on. Oh, most mm-hmm. definitely. No, I can't wait to get my hands on it. I had my little sneak peek of it, but to get my hands on the actual book, it's going to be pleasure for me. Now, in the book, you deal with things of people doing small good deeds that they've long forgotten about. Why did you think that those were important enough for the Harvest Prize to highlight? Um, because I think for all of us, something that might seem small can have a huge right. impact that you can't even begin oh, to yeah. imagine. Um, whether that's um, in an individual case where, you know, just something that you say to a little kid that gives them some sort of a boost or an encouragement um, or a hope, you know, you have no idea how much that can mean to them and how much that can resonate, um, maybe to the point of, of even changing their opinion about themselves. So, um, you know, it's, it's always good to just keep in mind, because, I mean, you might say something nice to a little kid and you might forget about it the next day, and they, re- they might remember it forever. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting to hear stories of successful people, and, you know, almost all of them had a turning point, and it was usually because they got some sort of encouragement or somebody believed in them. Um, And again, you know, the person might have been very genuine and sincere in issuing that compliment, but they might not have realized the impact that they were making. Um, And I also think that, um, you know, it goes with being a part of a a larger uh, whole as well. You know, so, you know, somebody might donate a dollar or two to charity. You know, I think we've, you know, we've all had that opportunity at some point, you know, especially at the holidays. You go to buy something and, you know, hey, do you want to donate a dollar to whatever charity? 
And most people might think, oh, yeah, sure, that's, you know, it's not a big deal. I can afford a dollar. Well, you know, if a bunch of people make that decision, that's going to make a huge impact, you know, and that could be the difference between, uh, you know, a family, uh, you know, getting to go to Disney World with their uh, child who, you know, might have special needs or, um, you know, everybody, you know, going in to help out, you know, somebody who had some sort of a tragedy. So I think it's a lot of times uh, people can get into the habit of doing small good deeds and, you know, they don't really even think about them, but you just have no idea of what the long-term impact could be. And I think that's something that's worth celebrating. And I think that's kind of a universal human hope. I think that there's uh, something within all of us that we do want to bring good for somebody in some capacity. Um, so I think that that's another reason that the book appeals to people is um, the fact that you can, you know, make a big change for somebody, even if it doesn't seem like it's a huge commitment for you. You know, that donation to uh, charity, you know, to help uh, right. families overseas, you know, 10 or 20 bucks not might be a huge deal here in the U.S., but when you go over to other countries where you can feed people on 17 cents a day, I mean, you just have no idea of the impact that you can make. And I think that was something um, that I, I wanted to celebrate and uh, I wanted to highlight in the book. Now, see, I like that. And you are exactly right about that, too, Jay. It goes a long ways, and you never know who you are blessing, who mm-hmm. sees your good deeds. Don't think that it's unforeseen here. Because I get told a lot of things. Sometimes I will forget that, oh, I did this, and someone come around maybe a year later, oh, you did this. And for such my job, I'm a waitress still at the Marriott, and I get plenty of my guests who come back, you did this, and da-da-da-da. And pressures go a long way. Some of these really changes people, makes them feel mm-hmm. good. So don't think because. Hey, I'm doing this. I'm not getting recognized for it right now. You're getting recognized. And always remember, God got his eyesight on everything that we do. So our Lord don't forget nothing our favor. That's what I love about him. Um, I now, agree. In the book, the Harvest Christ kind of has themselves their own struggle. Why? Well, um, when the book opens, um, it's it's because harvest the Harvest or excuse me, the Harvest House has just opened. Uh-huh. Um, and the book okay. focuses primarily on three harvest criers, but there are other crier, harvest criers out there. And there's a hi- hierarchy within the harvest criers as well. So you do see a fourth harvest crier in the book that is higher than uh, the ones that the book primarily focuses on. Um, but uh, the the reason that they're opening Harvest House is because it's for the three harvest criers there they need an easy assignment because their previous one, they had been, and they're coming back from a six-month vacation. Um, In their previous uh, assignment, they had been in South America for years where they were going around to Nazis that had escaped justice, and they were there to bring revenge on the Nazis and to really try to emphasize you did something that was horrible, you have done terrible things. Um, And some of these former Nazis um, were genuinely um, sorrowful about what they had done. But the last two that they had been dealing with were not. They they reveled in their evil. They they thought it was, um, you know, a, a great thing that they had done. And it just, even though the harvest criers are much stronger mentally and emotionally than mortal human beings, it, it just completely wore them out. They were just so shocked and horrified at the atrocity um, that these former Nazis had really genuinely enjoyed. They, they, were at the point where they were ready to snap. So they actually had to um, have another harvest crier come in and, and say, you, you need to get out of here now. So uh, they were all given a, a six months off to just try to 
kind of find their way again to, to cope with this enormous tragedy. So when they come to Harvest House, they're still trying to deal with shaking off all of the negative experiences that they had just had. So it's it's a place of healing, not just for the people that they're there to reward. It's also um, a place for them to kind of get their, their sea legs again, if you will. Okay. And I'm glad that you mentioned a little bit about the narcissism and everything, because you deal with a lot of things in the book, everything from small acts of kindness to family issues to drunk driving, racism, narcissism to self-sacrifice to standing up for others. Why did you want to include so many issues in one book? Well, it's a bit of a challenge when you're dealing with that many issues, um, but with the Harvest Criers, they're taking care of uh, five people in this book, and, um, you know, four of them are elderly, um, and there's another one there that's uh, more of a middle-aged person um, who is dealing with a disability. Um, so when when you're talking about that many people that have lived long lives, um, you know, they have dealt with some of these issues. Now, maybe not all of them to the same degree, but, uh, you know, certain things um, that have major impact, they, they have shaped the lives of many people um, you know, when you look at issues like, um, you know, racism or Nazism or discrimination in any form, anytime it happens, I, I firmly believe the whole of society loses out. And it's not just about the injustice to the people that are being discriminated against, and that's a terrible thing, and right. I, I do not want to minimize that. But anytime the, that there's a position where um, not everybody has a chance to compete and succeed fairly with everybody else, we all lose out. You know, we lose out from what they can contribute. And, um, you know, whether it's in areas of, um, you know, science or medicine or um, art or music or anything, the, the point is we all lose, whether or not we realize it. And we are all put at a disadvantage anytime that happens. So that that's another concept that I wanted to explore in the book, that, you know, we really do uh, the small things and as well as the major events shape our lives in ways that we aren't always conscious uh, of. So that, to me, was something that was important. That was another idea that I wanted to explore in the book. So when you're dealing with five people who have, you know, four of whom have lived very long lives, you know, one who uh, is about 40 years old, you know, those issues are going to come up, and they do shape people um, profoundly, whether or not they realize how much they're being affected by it. Well, Right, and it's it's just amazing because I'm like, all these issues in this one book, that was a good job, though. A little risky, but I think leaving it up to you, Jay, I know exactly you knew what you were doing. It takes a pro to do that. You oh, can't thank you. It, 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 right. Thank you. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, you, when you put stuff out there, um, you know, people, everybody's going to walk away with, with a different interpretation. You know, every adult that exactly. sits down to read the same novel you know, a thousand people can read it and a thousand people are going to walk away with a different interpretation. So it's it's something that uh, I think all authors need to be um, conscientious of, um, you know, specifically in the editing process when you're done with the, with the book. You need to make sure that the tone was conveyed in the way that you want to convey it. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I've achieved that. I believe so. And I love that you incorporate some actual historical events in the novel, such as the Holocaust. World War II, the French Renaissance, the Korean War, and Vietnam. Is it difficult to put true history into a book that is maybe classified as fantasy and magical realism? 
Yeah, I think any time that you write a work of fiction, it's tricky. Um, and I think that sometimes when you are incorporating true history into um, the fantasy and the magical realism categories, it is tough. Um, magical realism um, being this idea where it's it's mostly rooted in reality, but there's these small bits of um, where they take off, as opposed to full-blown fantasies that are taking places in other worlds, like The Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. So it's I think it's important for a, a good um believable, if you will, believable magical realism book, um, to, as much as you can root that in reality, I think that's important. Um, it's a lot of fact-checking. It's a lot of um, being wow. cautious about what you're doing. Um, you know, the Vietnam War, which people still have very strong opinions on, on, you know, both sides of the spectrum as to, um, you know, should we have, you know, been involved in that war? Should we not have? So people are going to have really strong opinions about some things. Um, and hopefully all of us with the Holocaust, you know, everybody would agree, like, yes, that was a terrible thing. Um, but uh, I think to really um, put the true history in, I think it does mm-hmm. give it more of a grounding in reality. But um, it's a lot of fact-checking. Um, so that can be a challenge because there's a lot of research that goes into it as opposed to if you would choose not to. And again, um, it's, it's all about conveying the right tone. Um, you know, if the character is going to have an attitude that's completely, um, different, um, from the authors, you need to kind of convey mm-hmm. how you want that event to come off. Um, because you don't want it, you don't want people to read it and mistakenly think that you're trying to send a message that that's not your intention. So it's a really difficult wow. balancing act, and that's that's why the um, editing process after the manuscript is completed, I think, is really one of the most critical aspects of writing a book. It seems, and this seems to be one of your most difficult writing books ever, Jade. Out of all the books that you have written, this one. Is the most um, the most time spent book because you said, of course, you had to do the research. You got all these live events going on that people know of that, like you said, may be offended by someone, but that's not your intention at all. We got all these different five people going on all these different things at one time. Would you say this is probably one of the most difficult writings you have done so far? I think it really is because it was tough to strike a balance because in a lot of my former books, there's always been a distinct main character. And this is definitely more of an ensemble. So here I'm dealing with eight primary characters. Um, The book really uh, focuses on Roz a little bit more than some of the other characters in the book. But still, I I don't think that people are going to necessarily walk away and say, oh, she was definitely the strong main character because it it was definitely – um, an ensemble uh, type of a book. So, yeah, that that was definitely a challenge to um, keep that because you also have to keep eight storylines going. So that's another one. And then um, within each one of the storylines, um, for the five residents at least, um, they, they kind of have to have their own supporting cast of characters. So it's it's kind of the idea that you want to keep everything balanced but you want to keep everything clear for the reader um, because I think sometimes that's the challenge as a writer. If you get into a book that's really long and there's a lot of characters, um, you could have a reader going, you know, okay, wait a minute, who who is this person if it's a minor character? You know, and then they have to flip back 50 pages and try to remind themselves of who they were. So I think it's definitely tough um, sometimes to write a big ensemble piece like that, but uh, mm-hmm. I just – you know, I hope I've balanced it well, and, uh, you know, so far I've been getting good feedback from people that have read it, so I'm I'm hoping oh, that it's good. 
Heck yeah, that that took some work. My my daughter, she was just talking to, to me about that she she wrote something. I didn't get a chance to read it because she brought it to me this morning before heading off to school. And she took it back with her. I said, well, if you want to be a writer, you definitely have to practice that, and and that includes myself. I used to write for newspapers, but writing a book is it's two different things, you know. You putting all your heart and passion into writing that book. Um, but I told anything that you want to do, you have to practice and you have to get with people who know what they're doing mm-hmm. and stuff. I mean, your mom didn't go for writing, maybe journalism as far as news reporting. But, yeah, I told her, stick with it. You know, at, at the age of 12, they're all over the place. They want to do everything right. that they set their hearts on to. So I disagree. I'm the one of the parents who sit back and I disagree. Okay, you want to write? Cool. You want to play basketball? Wonderful. By next week, they're changing again. It was Delta. It was a flight attendant. I'm like, great, awesome. You know, I don't know. <laughs> All over the place. <laughs> but, um, you know, some of the residents that are shown the error of their ways want to change. Do you believe it's possible for people to directly change their ways? I think they can, but I think it takes a tremendous yeah. amount of effort. Um, it, it, sure it's about people acknowledging that they were wrong, and sometimes that involves a major shift of, of their mindset, something to change yeah. their morality, um, something to change um, just their opinion or to admit that they were wrong. So I, I think it's a difficult thing, but I think that if somebody is really and truly committed to changing their ways, I do think it is possible. Yeah, sometimes it takes years before they change their way too, Jay, from from experience. It, it, you could change at the age of 50. It takes you 50 years before you actually make that change. Some mm-hmm. change at a younger age. So it all depends, like you said, on that person and what they really want to do. Because if you want to keep doing the same thing over and over, that's fine. It's okay to make mistakes, but repeating mm-hmm. the same mistakes is a problem. So I do. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. Now, in the book, if I'm saying it correctly, Anzo yes. um, tells one of the residents, the things you do matter. The things you don't do matter. Does this reflect your own beliefs about life? I, I agree with that 100%. Um, Ansel is uh, mm-hmm. the harvest crier out of the, the three primary ones in the book um, who um, is in charge of the other two, um, in a sense. It's really more of a more of a team effort. It's very much of a balanced, equal group, but but he is the one with the authority. Um, but he's not the type that likes to throw his weight around. He is the type that's you know puts trust in in his uh, fellow harvest criers, and they they work in, in this really kind of um, beautiful, harmonizing way together. And when he's telling one of the residents, the things you do matter, and the things you don't do matter. I think that is huge um, because the small things that you do whether they're positive or negative, over time they're going to have an effect. Um, And then the things that you don't do, whether they're positive or negative, they also have an effect. Um, So if people choose not to do something, that's going to change the course of their life. If people choose to do something, it's going to change the course of their life. And, um, you know, I think everybody, our lives are kind of uncharted territory. Um, Our futures are anyways. So, you know, the decisions that you make today, I, I don't, think um, people necessarily realize how much of an impact that's going to make in the long run. So that was just kind of something that I wanted to throw in there as a reminder, because I think it was an important thing to uh, change the tone, because going back to how people choose to live in the small things, it's really their own habits of how they choose to act and how to conduct themselves 
uh, shape the course right. of their lives and shape the course of their relationships um, and the people that they choose to be. So I think that all those types of things make an impact. It does. And I'm, I, I I do. I understand this very well. The things you do matter, the things you don't do matter. It does. It's in our it's in our society today. Everything that you don't do, if the president doesn't benefit us, it affects everything. If he does benefit us, it affects everything. Every action that we take has a consequence behind it, as you said, whether it's good or bad, bad karma, good karma. Everything has a result behind it. If you don't work out, you just won't be in shape. Mm-hmm. If you don't um, give your car gas, it's just going to be out of gas. It's just going to mm-hmm. be empty. So that does, it makes perfect sense. It's always my belief. I think that right. probably should be 100% of every American out here, everybody's belief. Now, what message are you intending they, that the people take from your book? Ultimately, I hope they walk away with a sense of hope. Um, that the, you know, and I think that's a universal thing again, that, uh, you know, I think we all hope to bring, um, you know, good to others, but this idea that the small things that you do, um, are, are, you know, are making a difference. Um, this idea that, um, you know, people can benefit from you and that can pay dividends that you aren't realizing, you know, you could benefit from this decades, from now, so I think that it's it's just a message of hope that I want people to think that um, you know keep doing good because yeah it's making a bigger impact than you realize um, for people that want to change their ways um, that it's possible to change your ways so um, you know I just hope that when people read this book they walk away and they they feel better about um, their lives about the type of people that they choose to be and the type of people that they want to grow into. I love it. I do. With this discussion, I'm loving every bit of it, and I'm hoping everybody, um, you definitely got the website and definitely get this book. Um, I thought about Kant a little bit when thinking about that, um, of, of goodwill. I think a goodwill is not good because of what else they accomplish. Because of its fitness for attaining some proposed end is good through it's willing alone that it is good in itself. I I know I took a philosophy class and I thought about Kant when you mentioned that with the good and the bad and everything that we need to learn. So hopefully with this book, someone gets some understanding. That's why I said make sure everyone shares this show because someone out there needs this information. They need this value added to their life daily. And this is it. Jay, are you planning a sequel? Yes, actually I am. I am working on a sequel um, currently. Um, I want to make this an entire uh, series because I really do think that this is an interesting way to um, get in and uh, you know just look at different people and different perspectives and and um, you know I think that uh, as these these characters change, um, you know I'm you know right now with the Harvest Criers um, themselves working with different human beings, uh, you know, there, there's just a lot of uh, potential for different stories to explore different opinions, um, you know, consequences, all these things that uh, human beings deal with. I think it, as you put those issues into a character form, um, I think this is something that a lot of people are really going to gravitate towards. So um, I've already had some people already asking me about the sequel, which I am still working on. Um, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, 
which is great. You know, I mean, when you're an author, that's that's what you want to hear. Um, I'm always very flattered because I've had people say with uh, my books in general, which on average are probably about 200 pages, um, they'll say it was good. The only thing I didn't like about it was it was too short. So it's always a gratifying thing to hear. So, uh, But, yes, um, I do plan on not just a sequel but an entire series. Oh, well, I'll definitely be waiting on that sequel. I'm always waiting on one of your books, Jay. This time, <laughs> but, you know, this isn't the first type of novel where you actually created a new type of of supernatural character. You did the same thing in your novel, The Incorrigible Dreamers. Why did you like creating these outside-the-box characters? Because I think it just opens up um, a whole new world for me as a writer. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have a blast writing. I love it. Um, you know, I hope, of course, my readers walk away, you know, from one of my books entertained. But, I mean, for me, th- this is really my favorite thing to do. I love writing. Um, it's just so entertaining for me. So I think to just it's just fun to create entire fictional worlds and, and people. And I think um, to do this, it's, it's just an amazing uh, privilege for me to be able to do this. Um, you know, and there's always going to be uh, genre stories about, you know, ghosts or you know, zombies and werewolves and all these things that we're seeing now um, right. that are growing in popularity. But uh, to to kind of see, like, okay, what can I do that's unique and original that hasn't been done? For me, that that is the challenge. So it's uh, it's always a wonderful thing to uh, sit down to either my laptop or to, uh, you know, a blank journal and uh, a pen and, and to just you know, kind of wait to see what comes of it. It's just a blast. So I love to be able to have the challenge of, you know, taking what is, you know, rooted in a realistic story, but to be able to stretch the uh, the boundaries of reality, even even just in a, you know, a fictional context to uh, see what could be. So for me, it's just a lot of fun. I'm glad you're enjoying it, Jay. For some out there, it may seem a little tedious to just start writing and, and, and boring for most, but I'm glad that you're enjoying every bit of this adventure. I'm so proud of you coming out with oh, your book you. and you keep going. Yes, it was a, it, it's always a pleasure to have you back on. Jay, I would like to ask this, though. What are some good tips to really get someone going if they want to begin writing? What, what should they focus on or what should they not focus on? Well, I think uh, if you want to be a really successful writer, um, you need to be a reader. Um, Know what kind of stories you like and why. Um, Ironically, my interest in writing started when I was about five or six, and it was from actually watching movies, Um, two in particular. Um, One was Anne of Green Gables. Um, because I I couldn't understand half of what she said because the words were too big and I was pretty little when I saw it for the first time. But uh, the fact that she, you know, had this amazing vocabulary and, uh, you know, was smarter than most of the grown-ups that she knew um, was a fascinating concept. And um, also the uh, movie A Christmas Story, um, you know, Peter Billingsley, you know, he played the little boy Ralphie um, who wanted a, a BB gun for Christmas. Listening to... Um, Gene Shepard's commentary, it was so extensive, and of course, you know, I was really little. I didn't understand a lot of what he said, but I'm listening to this long string of fancy words. But as a kid, I can watch the movie and follow the plot of what's going on. So I really kind of became fascinated with words, largely from that movie. Um, 
as well as Anne of Green Gables, because, you know, Warped Elves kind of seem to have a bit of a magical power, if you would. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I just think it's a tremendous thing to know what you like, um, to know what works, what kind of stories you like, what kind of style you like. Um, you know, because some writers are fantastic when it comes to comedy. Um, some wow. are very kind of austere in the sense of they don't put a lot of description and there are a lot more dialogue and nuance. So um, I think that will influence your style a lot, is to see what, what you are attracted to as a reader. And if somebody wants to um, go into fiction writing, another thing that I would suggest is to not just um, read novels and fiction, but to learn about things like psychology and history, because these are things that are going to be really important to a novel, um, particularly with psychology, to kind of get in there and, and figure out, you know, why do humans act the way they do? what kind of events could shape their lives uh, that would mold their personality or their characteristics. So I think that, um, you know, to really be a successful writer, um, just keep learning and keep growing. Um, you know, incorporate these different things into your novels, um, you know, because I, I firmly believe there's no such thing as useless information. So um, my ultimate tip um, to somebody who wants to be a writer is never stop learning. Exactly. You always have to be a student and, and look at other people's styles of writing. Everybody writes differently. We got so many great authors out there. Jay, yourself, Stephen King, Nora Roberts, the list goes, Daniel Steele. It goes on and on. So everybody has their own style of writing, as Jay said. You just have to know which angle you're going. Maybe you don't like horror, but you, in order to know that, you got to start writing to see where it actually goes. Um, but I wish the best of you, Jay. I'm hoping to have you on again when that next sequel hits. Cause I would love to come back to your show the, anytime. Yes. yes, Jay. Jay is one of my good friends. Don't forget to get her book. At, you can get it on Amazon. And just to learn more about her, please visit her website at jayhisley.com. That's J-A-D-E-H-E-A-S-L-E-Y.com. And before I leave you, I got to give you my truth for the day. Become satisfied with your own life. Instead of looking for experiences of winning or losing to define your self-worth, become satisfied with your life now. You may strive confidently to outdo your own efforts. This drive will overwhelm you, and it's probably a result of low self-esteem. When you constantly seek out people or co-workers to be better than All right, everyone. Seems that I got disconnected. I don't want to have, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this to you again because I want everyone to get this message. This is the truth of the day. This is all about motivation, inspiration. Start from the beginning again. Become satisfied with your own life instead of looking for for experiences of winning or losing to find yourself worth. Become satisfied with your life now. You may strive confidently to outdo your own efforts. This drive will overwhelm you, and it's probably a result of low self-esteem. When you constantly seek people out or coworkers to be better than or win against, you must ask yourself why. What is your true reason for your behavior? Remember, you are always more than good enough when you accept yourself just as you are. Whether you win or lose, who are you to judge? Today, be satisfied with the life you have now in order to create a better one. Enjoy the day and have lots of fun this weekend. Enjoying your life, everyone. And I really do appreciate you guys for tuning in.
Make sure you check out my archive at brightsidewithtk.com. Nothing stops this show, no matter what the devil tries to do. He tried to cut my show off, but I'm back in. He wants to mess it up, but not today. I give you no solution to that. I'm not even going to entertain you today. But without further, without any more communication, I want to thank you for listening and tuning into the Bright Side with Technician. I'll see you the next time. Peace. Thanks for listening to The Bright Side with Technicia. If you like what you heard, tell your dad, mother, cousin, uncle, whomever. Be sure to check out the archive section at www.brightsidewithtk.com. 